Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning and This morning, we're going to be continuing our teaching series that we've entitled The Coronation. And as we've learned over the past few weeks, Jesus has told us that the hour has come. The hour has finally come. The hour of the power of darkness, which is also the hour in which Jesus, the Son of Man, will be glorified in the midst of suffering. You know, Jesus' majesty, if you've noticed over the past few weeks, is being revealed more and more. Ironically, as he submits himself, it's ironic that his glory is going to be seen more and more as he submits himself to the rejection and the humiliation that's being heaped upon him by those he came to save. And so, a few hours before our passage, back in chapter 18, we see that Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest by, by one of his closest companions but before he is arrested you'll remember that he utters two little words he says i am remember that and it's like from his lips comes a shockwave that goes through the battalion of the roman cohort and it levels them to the ground they helplessly collapse to the ground and and what we saw is from the very beginning, as Jesus is being arrested, as he's being taken away, it's like Scripture wants to make it uh, very clear to us that Jesus is in command of this. Jesus says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. He is a willing victim, and he has the power to stop the madness anytime he wants. Jesus is willing, but he is not helpless. We need, to, we need to keep that in mind as we're looking at our passage this morning. We need to keep in mind that Jesus has no rivals. Jesus has no equals. Amen? Um, you know, you may say, well, does he have any enemies? And I would say, yes, absolutely. He has enemies, but, uh, and he has those who hate him, but that is their own choosing. People choose to hate re, uh, Jesus for no reason, because John 15, 25, Jesus himself said, they hated me, they hated me without a cause. He says, I am innocent. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning, over and over, we're going to see that, that even Pilate says that Jesus is innocent. But his hour has come, and as God's plan continues to unfold, there's one thing this morning that I want us to see. And, and I really mean that I want us to see this this morning. This morning, I want us to see the glory of Jesus. That, that's the one thing I want us to go from here and, that we saw this morning. I want us to see his greatness. I want us to see his majesty. I want us to be reminded that there is only one who has walked this earth who was perfectly faithful. There's only one who is faithful. There is only one who deserves to be praised. There's only one who deserves to be worshiped. And there is only one who deserves to be the king. 
That, that, that really is what I want us to see this morning. And the reason I want us to see his glory, his greatness, his majesty, is because when we do, when you see who Jesus really is, and you get it in your heart, it produces life transformation. If you want your life to be transformed by the word of God, if you want your life to be transformed by Jesus himself, you have to see him for who he really is. So that's been my prayer this week for me, and that's been my prayer for for you. Because Jesus himself said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So this morning, I want to pray as we're getting into our passage. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for yourself this morning. Because every single day, we have to wake up and see Jesus afresh. And I want to ask that you would pray uh, to the Lord on your behalf. Lord, help me to see Jesus this morning. Help us to see your glory this morning. So pray with me, pray where you're at, and then we'll jump into our passage. Father, uh, as I just said, um, Jesus is, is great. He is mighty. He is majestic, and, and he deserves to be praised and worshiped. He deserves to reign, and he is um, above all. And Lord, because of, of the world that we walk in, because we are in bodies of, of clay and of flesh, every day we have to wake up and be filled with your Spirit. And I know that we're waking up right now. So I ask that, Holy Spirit, you would do your work amongst us. I pray that you would reveal to us afresh, whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time, I pray that you would reveal Jesus to us. Show us his glory. Help us to uh, be in awe of, of him Help us to be transformed by him. Help us to fall in love afresh with the one who loves us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is standing in front of Pilate. And if you remember last week, he was standing before Pilate, and he said to him uh, an interesting phrase. He said, you know what? My kingdom is not of this world. And what he's doing with Pilate is he's telling him, you know, I did not come here this on my first advent. I did not come to earth the first time to conquer the Roman Empire. And so he's, he's kind of, in, in some ways, trying to help ease Pilate's tension. I'm not a threat to the Roman Empire, but to Pilate, it's like he's saying, but I am a threat to your empire. Because Jesus came. He came to conquer, not earthly kingdoms, but he came to conquer the heart's of men. He came to conquer our hearts to win us back, to win us back to God. And so on one hand, he's not a threat to the kingdom of this world, but on another, he is a threat to our kingdom. He's a threat to Pilate's kingdom. And there's one thing that Pilate knows about Jesus, and that is that Jesus is totally and completely innocent. The Gospels are very clear about this. Matthew and Mark, uh, two other Gospels that talk about Jesus. It says that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate knows he's innocent. Back in last week, when we looked at chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So Pilate knows he's innocent, right? That's very clear. He knows that he should therefore release him. The question we need to ask is why he didn't. Why does Pilate not uh, release Jesus? And the answer is because Pilate was kind of in a pickle. 
Um, if you read jo- Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian of his time, if you read his writings, he records that Pilate made some rookie mistakes when he first was installed into uh, office. So what happened was normally when governors would, would travel, they would travel with a band of soldiers. And, and those soldiers would carry a pole, and on top of that pole was what is called a standard. And on top of the standard would be like, uh, sometimes would be the bust of Caesar, a metal uh, golden image of Caesar on top of, of, the, of the standard. And they knew that the Jews hated that because they saw Caesar as God, the, the Romans did, and the Jews saw that as idolatry. So in order to keep the peace, wise governors would take off Caesar and set him aside and then go into Jerusalem. Well, Pilate, on his first entry into Jerusalem, thought that he would flex his muscles a little bit, and he would show them, hey, we put Caesar on uh, the standard in all the other places, you're no different. So he goes into Jerusalem with Caesar's uh, image up there. It infuriates the Jews. He goes back to, uh, Pilate leaves and goes back to Caesarea, but that's not good enough for the Jews. A, A group of them go back Uh, to him. And for five days, they protest. And they say, you you know, we want to talk to you. And so he finally uh, takes them into a local amphitheater. And once he gets them inside, he surrounds it with a, a battalion of soldiers. And he says, listen, if you don't go back to Jerusalem, I'm going to cut all your heads off. And so the Jews call him on his bluff. They say, we're not leaving and they actually get down on their knees, and they bare their necks to him, which causes Pilate to have to, in humiliation, to back down. And um, so he, from then on, he decided he was going to remove Caesar's image when he went into Jerusalem. But because of this event and a few others that I don't have time to go over this morning, because of these types of decisions— Pilate had caused eyebrows to be raised among the Roman Senate. And they were beginning to wonder if they had the right guy in the, in, in the place to govern. And so needless to say, long before Jesus stands before Pilate, Pilate is already in hot water and he's on shaky ground. So you can see that Pilate is in a pickle. And if he sides, here's, here's his dilemma, if he sides with the Jews, if he condemns Jesus, he's gonna have to live with the truth that he condemned an an innocent man because he had been pressured and bullied by the Jews. Not necessarily that Jesus is innocent, but he doesn't want to have to live with the fact that the Jews forced him to do something again against his will. But on the other hand, if he releases Jesus, what could happen? What was going to happen was a riot was likely to break out, which would jeopardize his already fragile political position. So we see that, that Pilate is in, a, is in a, a weird pickle. And so what he's trying to do in our passage this morning is he's seeking to find middle ground, which doesn't exist. But he's going to try to, to find middle ground and pacify and appease both parties. That's where, we look, that's where we pick up in verse 1 of our passage this morning. Let's look at verse 1. John chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 3, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. 
they came up to him saying, Hail, King of Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now, it's apparent that what Pilate is doing right here is he's trying to pacify the Jews. He thinks that maybe if he humiliates Jesus enough, he doesn't kill him, but he humiliates them him enough, he can bring him out to the crowds, the crowds who are the ones that are... Uh, that are following him, that, the, that the, the leaders are jealous of, the crowds will look at him and go, oh, he's not the Messiah, and it will pacify the Jews, if he, and they will be satisfied and, and go away. So he scourges him. Now, many of you may already know this, and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about this, but a Roman scourge was a small, a short, was a short wooden handle with three-foot-long three leather strips on it. And in that, those leather, leather strips, there would be sharp objects like metal, glass, and, and stone. And so what they would do is they would take the victim and they would tie their hands together and, and tie them to a post higher than their hands, higher than they, they could reach or they could barely reach so that they were on their tiptoes. And it would cause their back, the back of their skin to be tight. They would strip them totally naked. And then one or two soldiers would take the scourge, and begin to work from the top of the neck all the way down to the ankles. And in that, just imagine that, what that would be like, the ripping, the tearing of skin, the shredding of muscles. Sometimes, sometimes there would be um, organs, internal organs, and arteries would be cut and sometimes the, the victim would not even survive because it was such a brutal beating. But it says simply in the Bible that they took, he took Jesus and flogged him. But you know, this treatment that Jesus received was prophesied about hundreds of years prior to this day that it happened on. This was fulfillment of the scripture. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And then in Isaiah 52, 13 through 14, it says, see my servant, speaking of Jesus, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He didn't even look human, according to the scriptures. And the goal was to shame and to humiliate Jesus. And so the soldiers, they dress him in a purple robe, Probably it was one of the soldier's tunics that was laying on the ground. And then they honor him with a crown of thorns. And you know, this crown of thorns, as cruel as it was, really was fitting for this event. Because if you think about it, back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, it says that God cursed the ground. And from the ground would come what? Thorns. Thorns and thistles. So the... the, the uh, the thorn is a symbol of the curse. And so when Jesus, who is bearing the sin of the world, is crowned, he is crowned with the curse of the world. Verse 4 says that Pilate went out and said to them, 
See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find, here we go, here we go again, I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Behold the man. That word behold means to look at intently. It means to examine this man that is before you. Jesus probably, when he came out, was dehydrated and exhausted. He had not slept or eaten the night before. His face was bruised and swollen from being repeatedly struck in the face with the hand, with a reed. His lips are probably bleeding. Spit and blood are matted in his hair and in his beard that has been partially pulled out. It's, it's very likely that he would have been shivering because of the loss of blood. He's drenched in his own blood. The purple robe that's draped over his shoulders by now is sticking to his wounds. Imagine removing that eventually. The crown of thorns is entangled in his hair as it's pierced into his skull. And everywhere that he steps, he leaves the imprint, a bloody imprint of his, of his footstep, of his footprint. And Pilate says, behold the man. He's basically saying, look, he is no threat. Examine him. Now let me ask you this, what do you see? What do you see when you behold the man? Do you, do you just see an ordinary man who, who was confused and who was misguided? Do you see a good teacher who was just at the wrong place at the wrong time? Or do you see yourself? That's something that we need to, to ask ourselves. Do you see yourself here? Because you know what? Jesus when he was crucified, when he was beaten, is a visual picture of what we deserved. He, he is what we, what we should have had. He represents what our sin deserves. He's taking our shame. He's taking our punishment. Now, if you can see that yourself in Jesus, then there is hope because that's what he wants us to see. He wants us to see ourselves in him. And if you can see that, then you can see that he is your savior. He is your savior. This is what it means when it says that he represented us. This is what it means when, it, when we say that he took our place, when we say that he died for our sins. This is the gospel. And you know, if, if you long this morning, if you long to have your sins forgiven by God, first you need to see that this is what you deserve, what Jesus received, and then you believe and receive what he did for you. Do you want to be saved? Scripture says, behold the man and believe in him. And so Pilate brings him out, 
He says, look, I've humiliated this man. He shouldn't die. This is enough. I'm going to let him go. In verse, verse 6, it says, When the chief priests of the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. You, can you hear the frustration in Pilate? He's like, I'm, I'm wanting to let this guy go. Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, we, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, for some reason, when when Pilate hears that Jesus is the son of God, it frightens him. Now, it could have been because he was superstitious when he heard that he was the son of God. It could be that he was superstitious and that he did not want to anger the Greek gods. It also could be, be, it also could be because in Matthew, it records that Pilate's wife had a dream about this, about Jesus. And she sends a message to Pilate and says, have nothing to do with this innocent man. It could be because of that. Or it could be because the Holy Spirit is bearing witness about Jesus, just as he is to us this morning. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our conscience that Jesus is indeed innocent, and that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. We're not exactly sure. It could be all of those reasons why Pilate is frightened. But it says in verse 9 that when he heard this, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And look at, look at the next sentence. But Jesus gave him no answer. It's easy to see here, isn't it, that it wouldn't have taken much for Jesus to have gotten set free here. He would have just said, yeah, you're right, I'm innocent. Would you, would you set me free? But he doesn't, does he? Instead, he continues to reveal his glory. He fulfills pro- prophecy again. Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus refuses to be released. Why? Because he's doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it's more than just paying for our sins. He's being completely and perfectly submissive and obedient to the Father. Jesus is the only one who could love the Father with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, and all his strength. And that's what he's doing here. He's being, his Father said, die for mankind, and he is being obedient to the point of death. Had he opened his mouth, he wouldn't have done that. And he is, be, he is doing for us what we could not do. Our king is taking our place. Verse 10 says, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, this is an elementary truth that we should know. It's something that we need to be reminded of, that we often forget, and it's this. 
We all exist because Jesus brought us into existence. We all exist because Jesus brought us into existence. And that means that everything we have, everything we possess is a gift from God. Every single thing. And this includes authority, this includes influence, and this includes power. We all have that in different measures. We all have authority, influence, and power. And you know, power is a very interesting thing, isn't it? On May 28, 1991, President Vaclav Havel of Czechoslovakia, he accepted an award for his contribution to European civilization. And at his acceptance speech, he discussed the phenomenon of power and the temptation that power represents. It's, it's a very interesting speech. We don't have time to, to go over the entire speech this morning, but I want to just pull some things out of it that I think are extremely interesting that could actually benefit us when it comes to power, when it comes to power and the temptation that power represents. He asked this question. He says, why is it that people long for political power? Now, he's going to talk about political power, but this, this isn't only about political power. This is about any type of power, in my opinion. He says, why is it that people long for power? And why, when they have achieved it, are they so reluctant to give it up? Well, there's, he, gives, he gives several reasons, but I'm going to, to note two of them. There's a bright side to it. He says that basically the reason that we want to have power or get, uh, be into uh, positions of authority is because we have ideas about how, if we were given the power, how we would change the world, how we would improve our world. For, exa for example, we might want, would want to end poverty, end oppression, help orphans, do good things. If we had more power, that's what we would do with it. We tell ourselves that, right? If I had a million dollars, I would da-da-da-da-da, right? That's the bright side of it. Then there's a dark side that we often don't really realize. He says, it's being motivated by the natural longing every human being has for self-affirmation. There's a longing, a natural longing in everybody to, to, for self-affirmation. The desire to leave your mark, to shape the world around you in your own image, to enjoy the respect of others automatically given to those who have power, influence, and authority. The bottom line is the dark side of wanting power is the desire to prove to everyone and yourself that your life has meaning. And, you know, most people who want power would, would claim the first one. I just want to make the world a better place. I just want to help people. And that could be true. I'm not saying that that's not true. But rarely are we aware of the second desire, that our motivation for power is self-affirmation so that we can be accepted and recognized and validated by others. And, you know, that, this is what Pilate is struggling with this morning, isn't it? But you know what? It's also what I struggle with on a regular basis. And I don't know. I hope you realize you do too. We all struggle with this. We struggle with choosing to use the power that God has given us, whether it's our gifts, our resources, whatever positions that he's put us in. 
We struggle with using them for his glory rather than for affirming our own self-worth, making names for ourselves by what God has given us to make a name for him. And so Pilate has, in this passage, two choices. Two choices for how he uses his power. He can use it to, uh, to protect the innocent. That's why God put him in that place as governor, was to govern the people for their benefit, or to protect himself, to protect his little kingdom. And it's like when he's standing before Jesus, Jesus says to him, yes, you have authority. Yes, you have power. Yes, you have influence over me. But it's only because it's been given to you from above. And you have a choice right now how you're going to use that power. How are you going to use your influence to do what is right? Are you going to stand in the truth? which would mean to stand up to the Jews and do what's right? Or are you going to use your power to seek to save yourself temporarily by seeking to pacify the crowd? The crowd that in the end is going to discard you once they get what they want. They're only using you as a pawn. So who are you going to use your power for? What choice are you going to make? And that is the choice that he has to make, and that is the choice that each one of us, each one of us has to make on a daily basis. Who will we choose to serve with the power and influence that we've been entrusted with? Are we going to serve Jesus, or are we going to serve the crowd? Are we going to serve Jesus or ourselves? Are we going to serve the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Satan? And this is the choice that we must make, as I said. Let me back up. Actually, this is the choice we make every single day. And so what I want us to see here, I've got four takeaways that I want to see in this, us to see in this passage as I'm closing out. The first one is this, is that God is calling you to himself. This morning, God is calling you to himself. And this is what this, Jesus' coronation teaches us. That he came to earth to call us to himself. Not just by what he said, but by what he did. He demonstrated his love for us. This is what we've been looking at this morning. The demonstration of his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is how much Jesus wants us to know the Father. And it also teaches us that as he's calling us, that he wants to forgive us. He wants, he's offering forgiveness if we will choose to repent. That is to change direction and to return to God through Jesus. So I'm not just talking to those who have never believed in Jesus. Now I am talking to those who've never believed in Jesus. If you've never believed in Jesus, I'm talking to you. Let me start there. I started the wrong way. If you have never put your faith in him, but you, this morning, I said that God is calling you to himself. If you're hearing him call you to yourself this morning, I want to encourage you to bow your knee to him. I want to encourage you to believe in him. Bring everything you are and lay it at his feet and put your trust in him this morning. Now, now church, I'm not just talking to those who aren't, uh, haven't believed yet. I'm talking to us this morning. 
God is calling us this morning to examine our lives. As I've been preaching, as I've been sharing, has an area in your life come to your mind that God has brought to your mind and he's saying, you know what? I'm not king over that area. You're holding back on me. I want to encourage you, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond to him this morning. Bring that to him. Confess it. Lay it at his feet. And believe in his forgiveness. And he will receive you right now. Secondly, after we see that God is calling us uh, to himself, secondly, we need to understand there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. I hope, I hope you see that Pilate has taught us that. There is no middle ground. You have to make a choice. You have to choose a side. And Pilate was trying to, to ride the fence, but in the process, look what he did. He tried to please Jesus. He tried to please the Jews. What happened? He ended up humiliating Jesus. He ended up marring the image of Jesus. There is no middle ground. And, and another thing that Pilate teaches us, he teaches us that you can know the truth about Jesus. You can know that he's innocent. You can know that he deserves to be set free. You can know that he's even the son of God. You can know these things and still be his enemy. You, you need to understand that just knowing, oh, I believe that he died on the cross for my sin may not be the, the faith that changes you to bow your knee. And the reason that just knowing these facts is not enough is because you're still his enemy and you have not bowed your knee to him as, as the king, as the Lord. He's come, again, he's come to conquer our hearts through love, right? And if, if just because you know facts, it doesn't mean that you know him. And so we need to understand that, that just because uh, unless we put our faith in him, unless he is our king, he is, we are still his enemy. But I want to remind you that he is calling out to you this morning. Number three, we need to understand that it will cost you your life. If you come to Jesus and you fall at his feet, what you're basically doing is you're bringing everything about who you are your, your, your right to make decisions about your life and lay them at his feet. And this is why Pilate was so conflicted. He loved his life. He loved his position. He loved his kingdom. And he knew that if he sided with Jesus, that he would lose it all, not realizing that in reality, he would have gained it all. He would have gained eternal life. And so we need to embrace the truth that if we decide to stand with Jesus, there are going to be times that we, we will stand out when we don't want to. There's going to be times that we will experience shame. We will experience rejection. We may even lose position in this world. You know what? Your life may even get worse. It may get more difficult if you follow Jesus. This is his promise. Jesus promises us this, right? John 15, 20, 21 says, remember the word that I said to you. He's speaking to his disciples. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus says, count the cost, count the cost, because it will cost you your life. 
but he doesn't end there. This is the fourth truth I want us to see. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. Romans 10, 11 through 13 says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be, I'm going to add the word ultimately, put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what does that mean when we're saved? It means that we are forgiven. It means that we have our fellowship with God. We, we get to be back with the one who created us. And we get to have fellowship with one another, other believers in Christ Jesus. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And with that, God begins to give us eternal purpose. Our lives begin to take on a new meaning, not for ourselves, not for self-affirmation, but for him and for his kingdom. That's what we were made for. And I want you to think about it. I want you to think about your life this morning. Who, and this is the end, who does your life belong to? Who does your life belong to? Who's the true king of your life? Not by just what we say, but according to what you do. Is it still yours for you to do with as you wish, for you to continue to build your kingdom, make a name for yourself? Is it still your time? Is it still all your money? Is it still your body? Is it still your dreams? Are you still seeking the affirmation from man or are you seeking it from Jesus? And here's what I want you to be truthful. What is the truth this morning? What is the truth? If there's an area, again, that he has brought to your mind, your heart, what, what he's wanting to do, what, what you need to see there, is if, if you're experiencing conviction this morning, thank him for that. Thank him that he's, he's at work in your life. He says, those who I love, I correct, I rebuke, because he wants to bring you to repentance. He wants to change you in that area. He wants to set you free from that area. And if you, are, if you find this place, if you see some, an area that you failed, what are you supposed to do? Try harder? No. That, do not hear that this morning. I'm not saying try harder. That's because that's just trying to validate yourself, trying to show God what you can do. That's not what he wants you to do. He wants you to see what he's already done for you. So instead of trying harder, come to Jesus lay it at his feet, confess it, and then behold the man. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The hymn says, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We need to behold his glory because when we do, we will experience life and life transformation. Amen? Let's pray together.